Welcome to the Cultural Life of the Nobel Prize in Literature podcast, where we explore the literature prize's social, ideological, and institutional functions as the most recognized literary honor in the world. Amidst mounting skepticism towards the legitimacy and credibility of the Nobel as an arbiter of global literary excellence, its status as the preeminent literary prize remains. However, our understanding of the uses of the Literature Prize's prestige has yet to be fully fleshed out. We believe it is important to think about what we stand to gain and lose by preserving the global significance of the Nobel. So in this podcast series, we speak with scholars and writers from around the world to discuss the Nobel Prize in Literature's prominence as a signifier of meaning, a structuring of discourse, and even a narrative motif in different cultures and societies. Welcome to the Cultural Life of the Nobel Prize in Literature podcast. Today we have Dr. Hannah Simpson, who is widely published in the field of French theater, as well as modernist theater. And uh, one of her primary case studies is, of course, the Nobel laureate Samuel Beckett. And so um, today uh, I want to really just learn more from Dr. Simpson about her take on the Nobel Prize via her studies of Sammy Beckett and also maybe how Beckett can also inform our understanding of the Nobel Prize. So uh, Hannah, Dr. Simpson, maybe we can first start off with just, you know, like I mentioned, Sammy Beckett won the Nobel Prize in 1969. So I'm just curious as someone who studies rather intensively about Beckett, um, what is the role of the Nobel in Samuel Beckett's studies? It isn't necessarily something that has received a lot of direct attention. I mean, it's acknowledged certainly as, um, you know, something that shows the appreciation for his work. Of course, we talk about Beckett, the Nobel Prize winning writer. Um, but in terms of direct studies, we've rather followed Beckett's lead in, in somewhat dismissing the importance mm. of the Nobel Prize or perhaps the relevance of the Nobel Prize to his work, I suppose, might might be a better way to put it. Um, certainly, I mean, by the time Beckett wins the Nobel Prize, you know, yes, absolutely, he 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 has the standing and the sort of international standing that that would merit being a, a prize winner. But he's you know he's horrified by the the public scrutiny, the publicity that that this award brings into you know he's an intensely private man intensely private um hence you you have his, his his wife suzanne's famous um reaction whenever they hear that that he's been awarded the nobel prize she's recorded to have said set oh, in catastrophe it's a catastrophe she has this sense of of how disruptive this this period of intense public scrutiny will be on on his work i'm just curious like you you mentioned that the critics seem to follow Beckett's lead to sort of not exactly dismiss, but maybe just like sidestep a <laughs> little bit or downplay the importance of the Nobel. But what do you think about it? Like, does it, does it, is it useful to use the Nobel to study Beckett or is it simply, it's just not that useful there for people who don't use it? I think one yeah. way that it's useful is, is sort of actually in, in how diametrically opposed it is, or, or the sort of historical framework of the Nobel Prize is to understanding Beckett's work. Um, you know, I think that is something that, that repays attention, simply how 
strange it is in a certain way that that Beckett is awarded the Nobel Prize at this point. Um, because as I said, you know, of course he has the sort of global standing, the reputation to be to be considered as a Nobel Prize winner. And actually, when they open up the, the the Nobel archives, he's been considered before. He's been in quite serious contention in, in a couple of of the rounds previously. But the quality of his work, this really quite intensely despairing, um, bleakly, I mean, very bleakly comic, bleakly in capitals, comic in small letters work, is not something that fits with the sort of historical framework of, of the Nobel Prize. If we go back to, to, to Alfred Nobel's own description of the prize himself, uh, you know, as he sets it up in his will whenever he dies um, in 1896, and, and he says, um, you know, he, he sets up the, this, this prize, as, as you know yourself, Michael, um, the interest of, of his legacy should be annually distributed in the form of prizes to those who have in the preceding year conferred the greatest benefit on mankind. And the literary prize specifically, he says, and, and this is, I'm quoting here, should go to the person who has produced in the field of literature the most outstanding work of an ideal tendency. And that word ideal that Nobel uses, I mean, in a way that I think a lot of us use it, right, in quite a casual way, as if we definitely all know what we mean by ideal, we're all on the same page there, has occasioned all this controversy, all this competing interpretation as to what does he mean there by saying, okay, the Nobel Prize for Literature, it's not just outstanding work by whatever criteria you want to measure that, but it's outstanding work of an ideal tendency. Now, one of one of Nobel's friends is asked uh, shortly after his death, you know, what, what does Nobel mean by this, this sense of ideal or idealistic? And his claim is that, well, Nobel is an, is an anarchist by, by ideal. He means anything that is polemical or, or sort of critical of religion and royalty and marriage, any of the sort of great social orders of the day. But subsequent Nobel committees have tended to interpret ideal in this more strictly religious or ethical sense, um, ideal work as being that which encourages a, a high standard of behaviour mm. and specifically a sort of conservative and, and Christian understanding of, of good behaviour and a faith in human ideals uplift um, art as something that uplifts us, that points the way to, to the ideal way of being. Um, hence why you get Ezra Pound whenever Wyndham Lewis asks him quite late in his life, do, do you think you'll ever get the Nobel Prize? And he responds quite quite dismissively, no, the Nobel Prize is for idealists, which he and Lewis are certainly not. Um, but neither is Beckett, right? None of these words ring true of, of Beckett's work. You know, anyone who has, I think, even, even a passing knowledge of Beckett's work, even if, you know, waiting for Godot, is enough to already get the sense of, of these ideas of uplift and, and Christian morality, et cetera, are not terms that accord with, with, with Beckett's work. It's, you know, it's dispiriting. It's, it's not Christian in any straightforward sense. Okay, we might get Christian iconography, et cetera, but it's, it's consistently undermined or mocked. Um, to have Beckett as a writer, to have his body of work recognised not just for being outstanding, but for somehow fitting within this Nobel framework of the ideal and, and that sort of contemporaneous sense of, of the, the ethically ideal is strange. And I think that's the lens that, that is useful to take. That's wonderful. Um, when I was reading your paper on this, you, you do cover this point. I was just thinking to myself, it's like, yes, Beckett 
uh, has a sort of like a would you say like a nihilistic aura to it? No, it's like some existential, like there's no meaning, like waiting for Godot, you mentioned like, there's really nothing happening there. Like, yeah, it's, that's like a general impression of how we understand Beckett. And I agree with you that if we think of, you know, the the Nobel's will talking about sort of like this uh, constructive, positive contribution to mankind, that seems to be too uh, concrete for us to understand Beckett, which is more of always destabilizing meaning, right? Almost like asking us to question the assumptions of life and everything related to it. However, I'm also thinking, well, wouldn't Beckett also appreciate a type of destabilizing of his own image of being a very nihilistic destabilizing force? Would do you think Beckett would also appreciate to have something like the Nobel, have such a powerful force to sort of, you know, bows it out a little bit would you say so would you, would you do you think so that's really interesting i like that um i think to a certain degree yes except that the nobel prize is so powerful right mm, as an mm. institutional force as something that that fixes a writer and fixes their interpret the interpretation of their work in a certain way um you know if, if it's still sort of quite um quite a high culture intellectual award, it has that huge mass recognition. Um, and certainly, I mean, look at looking at the press releases in, in the months following Beckett's award, you get this sort of constant, <laughs> these poor journalists grappling with how to explain Beckett's work to the mass public, how to sort of summarise it and, and explain it, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, is an inevitable part of, of the work they're having to do. And even the work that the Nobel Committee is, is having to do in, in sort of, you know, summarising when the award is announced, it's for Beckett and here is why. And even in there, um, the, the speech that, that is made at the award ceremony that, that Beckett does not attend, but that goes ahead anyway, is his, his publisher, Jerome Linden, is, is there in his stead. You know, it is sort of, again, this incredibly highfalutin institutional moment in which Beckett's work is summed up. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, the president explains what the work is about and why it's being awarded. And I think, and, and that's why I'm quite interested in that play Catastrophe as a sort of reading of this, the idea of being fixed as a public figure, of being scrutinised, of being shaped into something comprehensible with or without your own agreement or your own will to a certain extent. I knew you had you had you had, um, the wonderful Dr. Brent Johnson on earlier, um, and and certainly his sense I think of, of this idea of how some prizes and certainly the Nobel Prize are accorded without the writer's agreement is a lovely mm -hmm. way of thinking about that in mm -hmm. in terms of Beckett. You know, yes, you might you might appreciate the prize, you you, mm -hmm. you might benefit from it, but it is something that is awarded to you. You do not put yourself forward for the Nobel Prize. So I think this mm. sense of sort of being swallowed up by by the institution of, of the Nobel Prize is it's just a little bit too strong to simply be destabilizing for, for Beckett at least. No, but yeah, point taken. And um, I think that's why um, the Nobel Prize has this also this image of like this kiss of death, you know, mm -hmm. like how your your career sort of ends, well, not necessarily because I'm so, like you mentioned, swallowed up by like a public mm -hmm. perception of source, yeah. But I'm just, I'm always curious, you know, like how, yeah, the Nobel is such a powerful force, but probably when it, the prize is 
given to someone of Becca's stature, it could be, yeah, I mean, as a critic, I, I just thought that that's kind of interesting. You know, you, you can expand on our perception of Beckett even more so and, you know, maybe globalize him a little bit even more than, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, I just thought that was quite interesting. But I agree with you. Like the Nobel has that sort of ratification, right, of how would you call it? Like not exactly commodifying, but uh, ratifying him to the point where, like you mentioned in, in your paper or the play catastrophe becomes almost like a mannequin and it mm-hmm. becomes like under the shape of public perception. So maybe we can turn a little bit to like that question of fame then, because I mean, Beckett, like you mentioned, what, before he won a Nobel prize, he was already, would you, would you say he was already like at least nationally or in terms of Europe, he was already well-established, right? Well, well-respected. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah you know, not just being well-respected, but, but as you say, being globally known, you know, he's, he's being translated almost immediately. If, 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 and again, I know that this is not a, a Beckett specific podcast. So, you know, for context, if, if Beckett switches across his career from writing first in French and then translating his work into English or writing first in English and then translating his work into French, by this point, I mean, there's a whole translator's industry around Beckett, right? As soon as something new is released, um, it's translated almost immediately across across Europe and, and further afield. Um, so yes, certainly. And again, even just that fact that he's been in contention before for the Nobel Prize. Um, and I don't know if I can re- remember the exact dates, but, but certainly the year before, if he wins it in 1969, he's very seriously in contention in 1968. And then I think at some point, maybe 64 is, is also the archive record that shows him being considered. And interestingly, both of you know the, the, the Nobel records of those discussions show him being put out of contention specifically because of this sort of dispiriting, potentially nihilistic idea. You know, the, 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 the judges are saying, oh, it's not quite fitting within our criteria, actually. Um, this discussion keeps happening even within the Nobel Committee until eventually in 69, they figure out how to package him so that, yes, he's despairing, but it's got this sort of love of mankind and this this enduring compassion are some of the words they use to then, to then talk about why this is actually idealistic work. So then the question is like, he, yes, he is already well-respected, famous, influential father of sort of like avant-garde theater of sorts yeah and does he like accept this fame does he embrace it does he like the publicity like what is his relationship (laughs) absolutely not not even a little all right okay (laughs) Um, okay yeah yeah i mean the 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 sort of the, the the days after he's awarded or the, 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 sorry, not that he's awarded, but that the announcement is made that, that they're going to award him prize are just astonishing. Because no, Beckett but I mean, like, what about what about other um, honors? Aside, so not talking about the Nobel, just other honors. I, I'm sure he's received other honors before the Nobel Prize. Like, what about those honors? Was he receiving those prizes? Yeah, that's interesting. So, you know, he has received other sort of less global, I suppose, awards and European-based awards. Um, quite famously, he shares he shares one uh, the Italian Literary Prize with Jorge Luis Borges um, earlier in his career. And certainly at that level, prizes that do not carry quite the same um, public standing, public recognition. Mm-hmm. 
certainly his letters show him, you know, writing to accept very gracefully, typically quite short, but very polite mm. letters. You know, I, I, I thank you. Um, I appreciate this, etc. Awards at that level that, that simply seem to be, you know, a recognition of the work and that entail not much more than a sort of recognition within literary circle and simply the need to, you know, to write in response or to send a short response. Mm. Um, it doesn't, at least that I have seen, seem to be any sort of personal distaste for um, literary awards in general, mm. right? Okay, interesting. Although I suppose we might think about the sort of weirdness of of, of um, the concept of winning within mm. this sort of body oh, yeah, of work sure. that is very much about failure and worsening and so on. But no, t- certainly the, the issue with the Nobel Prize, I mm. think, seems to be, A, the, the publicity itself, the sheer okay. level of scrutiny, and then, yes, that, that idea of being categorised as this kind of writer, this sort of idealistic writer, you know. Yeah, um, because like whenever I think of the Nobel Prize and how writers receive it, I think of like Sartre where he talks about, you know, like he refuses, rejects the Nobel Prize because he refuses to be institutionalised, right, as a writer. He doesn't want to be institutionalised by anyone, including the Nobel Prize, but not only for politics, um, he refuses just for in general. And I feel like Beckett is not really that, uh, he doesn't distance himself away from honors, right? Like he still wants them. He's still open, he's still open to them, but it's just like the Nobel is like a different beast. Would you say so? That's mm. sort of like the thing. Please. And even that question of, of, of um, declining the prize, right. right? And absolutely, as you say, there's, there's a precedent, there's a very, recent precedent there in 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 Jean-Paul Sartre turning down the award it it is something that Beckett could conceivably have done and one of the certainly between the letters between himself and Jerome Linden his his publisher who is incredibly I mean a fascinating man in his own right and is incredibly sympathetic whenever whenever Beckett wins the Nobel Prize but a lot of their discussion back and forth about whether or not Beckett might in fact decline the award Beckett seems very hesitant to do so on the basis that that will occasion just as much publicity. There will be just as much discussion and just as much media around that, you know, in, in the in the way that that, that Sartre generated and perhaps did not, <laughs> you know, was not upset about. <laughs> it's something that, you know, as, as quite a canny publicity man, Sartre maybe anticipated to some degree. So, yes, certainly that idea of it, it not even necessarily being the question of ideologically, should I refuse this or not, but simply to refuse will open up the same, the same catastrophe of publicity and scrutiny. Yeah. Um, now, about the play that you focus on, which is catastrophe, you read it as in, in light of Beckett's wife, Suzanne's remarks, you know, about the Nobel Prize as a catastrophe for Beckett. And yet, uh, I believe the play was actually commissioned, like originally commissioned in support of uh, Havel, the playwright. So are there any overlaps between the support for Havel and the sort of response to the categorization, the ratification of the Nobel? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, the sort of, perhaps to give a, a very quick summary of the play, which is very quick because it's a very short play, yeah. but um, you have the figure of the protagonist um, who is an elderly man um, on, and he's raised on what the stage directions call a plinth, but the, one of the characters refers to as a pedestal on stage. And he's attended by a character who is just called the director, 
who's dressed in a fur coat and who is very bureaucratic, totalitarian, and his female assistant who performs the tasks that he asks. And across the play, they arrange and manipulate the body of the protagonist um, to their liking. They whiten his flesh and they, you know, they roll up his sleeves and his trousers so you can see more and more of his flesh. Um, and they're arranging it for this, this sort of anticipated public performance that will happen. And throughout the play, the protagonist just stands there silently, more or less immobile, right up until the end when the director and the assistant are, are satisfied. Um, and they say, there is our catastrophe in the bag. They're happy with this sort of manipulation of, hmm. of the material. And then you get the very ending moments, you get canned applause um, that is played and the protagonist raises his head to look out at, at the audience. And this is a theatre play, so of course the audience themselves may have taken the cue from the canned applause to applause themselves. And he just looks at them and the canned applause dies away into silence. And you get the stare of, of the protagonist himself um, for a few moments, a few beats of silence. And because the play, I mean, the, the context of the play being written then, absolutely, as you say, it's, it's dedicated to, to Baclav Havel, um, who is, he, he's, a, he's a Czechoslovakian playwright and political dissident at the time of, of the communist regime in the country. And he undergoes various forms of political oppression, but because of this, his, his resistant activity, his plays are banned in Czechoslovakia for a long period. He's not allowed to leave the country and he's imprisoned several times as, as sort of an enemy of the state. The longest period being this, this four-year period during which Beckett writes the play, and he writes the play um, at the at the behest of the uh, Association Internationale de Défense des Artistes, which is a French-based um, sort of political charity that, that fights for artists globally and the artistic right to freedom. And, and he, he, he dedicates it to Vaclav Havel. So very sensibly, very understandably, this play is, is, is often read with that political inflection as, as being, um, you know, unusually for Beckett, quite an explicit um, political message about totalitarianism and the resistance mm. to totalitarianism. I say explicit because relative to Beckett, that, that is mm, quite explicit mm, for him. Mm, mm. Um, and absolutely, there is no there is no bit of me that is denying that reading. It would be incredibly perverse to try and ignore all that context. But what I think is interesting about catastrophe is that the part of that central message of the script itself is that resistance to neat categorization, neat mm. interpretation, um, the body manipulated and shaped until it means one thing that the director is satisfied with. And then you get the movement of the body, this, you know, we might call it a sort of passive resistance. It's interesting to think about whether it's passive or active, perhaps, um, to being categorised and shaped in this way. And I just think it, it, it's equally perverse to, to read Beckett's works as having one neat little meaning anyway, mm. um, to not say that there might be elements of this that are absolutely drawing from Havel and, and Beckett's own response there, but that also take into account his own quite recent experience of being categorised and, and explicated, as the play has it, this drive for explication, um, that, that these two threads might run alongside each other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This type of reading um, of how the East, which is, you know, I'm referring to like the, the USSR, Czechoslovakia, like that communist block, that type of censorship, um, 
and comparing that with perhaps what we could call like a, a market censorship of public perception, that type of censorship um, in the West uh, as attributed to the Nobel Prize. Yeah, that's something I've actually been looking into for uh, my PhD studies as well, you know, talking about how this idea of censorship is not uh, only determined in terms of external forces, you know, like in the USSR where you have like state censorship, you know, obviously people get thrown to jail, get banned and stuff. But in the West, perhaps those are not as obvious, but the type of limitation to your expression is structural in the sense that it's not as explicit. It could be covert. Um, it could be drawn from different forces combining to essentially feel that you are silenced. Yeah. So I, I suppose, you know, that's also something you're looking into when you're reading this play. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the sort of one of the particularly oblique references in that play um, is the, the idea that at one point when they're when they are manipulating the, the protagonist's body, the assistant, um, mm. who is quite servile, you know, does what she is told very, very quickly. And I think the stage direction is timidly. She suggests, um, what about a little gag? She suggests mm. putting a little gag on the protagonist. And the director dismisses this immediately. He says, absolutely not. He won't utter, <laughs> not a squeak. You know, he's, he's convinced that this is not necessary by any means. And, you know, the, the script bears that out. At no point do we get the protagonist speaking or speaking up in that sense. And yes, I think there's something very neatly aligned to, to your idea there of the sort of covert or internalized kinds of censorship that happen. Um, the, the gag, the the explicit or the overt gag is not needed because the censorship has already happened at a structural level. Is it a mannequin that they're working with? Is like actual actor? Is it's an it, is, yes, it's it's specified actor? as an actual actor. As an actor. Yeah. Okay, I think anyone in theater, you would sort of, you would know, like the actor really is at the mercies of the director, right? You're, mm. you're basically a puppet of sorts and you're, you're, you do your best into translating what the, the directors and everyone else needs you to do. And, and, and it's a good metaphor or like an allegory <laughs> of sorts, you know, to talk about censor, which I also find very interesting because let's say, if Beckett is someone who really cherishes and values that type of that freedom of expression of individuality, I'm curious, you know, like to what extent do actors or in Beckett's own dramaturgy, how much does the actor also have that individuality? You're right up my street here. I'm fascinated by this question. <laughs> um, and, and to backtrack for a second, I mean, this, this is sort of part of what I mean when I think about being resistant to to catastrophe having one neat little allegory meaning, right? Right. If if there are sort of absolutely elements of of, of Beckett's response to to Havel's condition there, and part of what that paper that I've written about catastrophe is doing is picking up on the elements of the protagonist's situation that seem to me to stem somewhat from Beckett's own experience. I think also, and this is not just me, this is certainly a critically recognised interpretation, the director in that play has elements of Beckett's own, again, sort of quite blackly comic self-criticism there, you know, as a director. And at this point in his career, again, he's, he's, he's very much a playwright director. He directs a lot of his own work and has a quite understandable reputation for being this tyrannical director, 
if mm-hmm. if that sense that that you're laying out if in theater broadly speaking there's always going to be you know leaving aside you know devised works there's always going to be a sense in which the actor has to embody what is given to them they're always the tool of the script or the director in Beckett's theater that is exacerbated to the nth degree you know the, the director mm-hmm. happy days is is quite a famous example where you know it's, it's a two-act more or less monologue right we have a second character he does not speak very much it's more or less this this female actor's monologue and the precision of that monologue that Beckett demands um not you know the words have to be perfect but the words have to be perfect to the beat of every syllable um you cannot say um instead of ah (laughs) if the script says um you will say um and then the various props that, that the actor is using have to be, you know, drawn out of this bag on stage at the exact syllable on which the stage direction mm-hmm. attends, you know, in terms of the director or the theatre framework more broadly controlling the actor. Um, Beckett's theatre is, is, is the, the extreme version of that, I think. Um, so I think absolutely there's a sense of, I mean, A, in terms of catastrophe, this being another thread that, that's being woven in if we're sort of thinking about oppression. And again, the weird ways we use that word to mean multiple things. You know, if, if, mm. if Havel is, is very, you know, again, at the extreme end of, of undergoing a political oppression here, but the terms in which Beckett's theatre work has been critiqued often borrow that same vocabulary. People talk about the torture that the actors undergo or the sort of totalitarian nature of, of Beckett's theatre. In a way that is, you know, I think understandable, but a bizarre conflation of the levels of what we're talking about here. Um, mm, mm, mm. If you are an actor undergoing these, you know, and yes, absolutely scripts that that are are intensely totalitarian in that sense and that, that can occasion demand a certain bodily submission or even, you know, bodily suffering at a certain point. But you are doing that consensually as an actor. You know, mm. to, to, to align this with a sort of level of, of of political torture or political oppression that is going on in these decades that, that Beckett and, and the world around him is very well aware of. I do think there's a, there's a very astute aligning of, of those forces in this play that Beckett is deeply aware of to sort of mm. bring together these different levels of, okay, here's a form of oppression versus this form of oppression. Here's a form of torture versus this form of torture. These things are not, in fact, the same. I definitely agree with you. Like, obviously, um, you know, just because in theater you are following, you know, ins- directoral instructions is like completely different from, you know, being sort of like a mouthpiece. Although, like, I mean, it's not difficult. I mean, on a very superficial level, I guess, to make the comparison, right? Um, but one thing that what you said reminds me, you know, maybe uh, a comparison between Beckett and, you know, the writer I'm working on, who is actually very, very, very much influenced by Beckett, uh, is uh, Gaussin Jen, who is uh, uh, also a Nobel laureate. Um, he's a French emigre writer. So he, uh, Chinese-born playwright, um, and then exiled to France for political reasons. Um, and he's very much influenced by Beckett. Um, for example, his play Bus Stop. Is basically sort of uh, like a a Chinese version of <laughs> waiting for Godot in the sense that the people are waiting for buses instead of like waiting for 
god or some whatever or yeah. you know but they have this sort of uh existential crisis like where has the time gone and all of a sudden we've waited for the bus for like 10 years and should we still keep waiting for the bus or should we just leave and people read it as like should we keep waiting for the government for the nation to be strong again, take care of us and, mm-hmm. you know, wait for them to keep their promises towards us or should we just do our own thing, you know? Um, so uh, that play was also pretty political, I've read in that sense and he got banned as well. But um, one thing that Gao maybe, maybe perhaps differs from Beckett, just from what I hear from you is actually Gao uh, invests a lot of, I would say like agency to the actor He's, mm-hmm. He basically developed something called like, uh, he, he divides the actor into three parts. So he calls the actors like a tripartite actor. And basically he divides the, the, his ideal actor into three parts. So you have the self and then you have the character. And then in between you have what he calls the neutral actor, which is the space between the actor's self and the character that's supposed to play. And for him, he's saying the most ideal performance would be to perform in that in-between state. So you are one, you are like sort of always in a um, standby position. So you're never fully immersed into the character. And so when you are acting, you are always very conscious aware that you are acting as opposed to maybe this sort of Stanislavski method acting type of thing where you are completely immersed into the character. Does, is there anything similar to Beckett's like dramaturgy? Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating. I, do, I don't know about Guy at all, but that, that sounds, I mean, I'm going to have to go and look at bus stop now for a start. But yes, certainly in that sense of, of the resistance to, to the Stanislavski method, um, Beckett is intensely against those, as you say, the immersion into the character type of, of acting. Not for me, these Grotowskis and methods, he says at one point about his, mm. his actors. He is completely uninterested in this um, psychologically driven form of acting. And he, he famously, or perhaps infamously, depending on, on what side of the fence you're on, he, he will never give actors um, more information about their characters. So if they want more yeah. background detail or, you know, what is the motivation here? And we have you know, lots and lots of various um, records from various productions of him always saying, I, you know, I don't know. I, I know what's in the script. That, that's what you have. And his advice to, to, to his actors and, and in a sense, the actors that he comes to really cherish, the actor Billy Whitelaw, the actor Jack McIron, they are the actors who have that precision of following the script, following the stage directions, the sort of bodily specificity, and using that to produce the performance. His idea is is very, very much that if you follow the motions, it's the movement Mm. from which you will um, be able to sort of immerse into and and create that, that performance. So again, on one hand, you know, it, it, it as you say, sort of superficially on the surface, it 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 demands a sort of what is the correct word? A sort of surrender of the self, mm-hmm. right? You have to mm-hmm. follow this 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 script incredibly precisely. But I think there's a sort of artistic virtuosity to that 
right? Oh, that yeah. is its own That's sort of scary. creative agency. You know, I couldn't I couldn't do those scripts, right? The instructions are there. Um, physically, you just have <laughs> to do it. <laughs> I could not. It would not work. <laughs> There's still a sort of creative agency that, that, that goes on there in terms of, yes, you must submit to the demands of, of the script, but actually the ability to submit and as such to, to occasion that creation. Because that's the interesting thing about the theatre form as well. I, you know, I'm interested partly in, and I, I don't know whether whether Guy writes across media as well, but that, you know, if much of Beckett's most famous work is his theatre work, he writes across so many different media. He writes prose, he writes radio, he writes television and film and poetry. This moment where he turns to theatre and starts working in the theatre medium and in a lot of ways, I mean, I think for anyone to turn to the theatre medium is a slightly odd choice because as a as a creative, you surrender so much yourself at that point, don't you? You have to turn your work over to the actor, to the director, um, to the public. I guess you always have to turn your work over to the public. But that live performance and that live public reaction is a very heightened version of that. So I do think the sort of the use of the theatre medium itself is really intriguing there as something that, OK, uses the human body as material form. You are using and demanding the use of um, another human creature. But as a, as a playwright, you're also deeply invested in this slight surrender of your work yourself. You don't get to retain all that control over it as well. Um, so to get back to your point about whether Gao writes in like cross media, mm. yeah, exactly. Precisely. He, people, you know, some critics would call him like a cultural polymath because um, not only he writes plays, he directs plays, he directs film. He's a really uh, successful play, painter as well. You know, yeah. he has like ink wash paintings that are in museums and like sold and auction, like sofa bay and stuff like that. Um, and uh, he also writes novels. That's why he made primarily he won a Nobel Prize because of his novels. Um, and uh, he also writes poetry. Yeah, yeah. So there, there's a lot of similarities. So perhaps one reason is because he's just so inspired by Beckett probably, you know, I, mm. I feel like because he was actually like a, a, a French student. He studied French in university. And so he was able to read um, all of the the French plays in its original language, which is something very uh, rare uh, for Chinese people at the time, because you know basically there was a huge ban of all foreign literature, foreign books into China when he was growing up. Um, th th there's definitely some overlaps over there, and I, I suppose in a way you talk about how there's a a type of you mentioned about some liberty and submission sort of like in terms of the individual i guess yeah gao also perhaps has his overlaps as well because you know he does also talk about you know for him is all, all about finding the infinite through the finite you know it's like yes you have limitations but how do you work with it i think is, is that yes. something like beckett yeah absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. So Beck is not exactly like a, a nihilist of sorts, right? Maybe that's like a, a really reductive way to describe it. I think so. I mean, yeah, I'm suspicious of, of those sort of terms that, that get placed onto Beckett's work because they're in currency at the time. And, and absolutely, there are, there are shared characteristics, but the, those sort of neat, especially those sort of neat French philosophy terms, existentialist right. and nihilist, yep. Um, yep. you can <laughs> see why they're associated and again, I think it would be it would be disingenuous to sort of go, no, there's no crossover at all there. But they don't quite fit. They're a little too 
I mean, you, you talked earlier about this, the the kind of um, the ambiguity of Beckett's work with that sort of reach to destabilizing. Sure. It doesn't allow yeah. for the sort of certainty. Yes, very despairing certainty, but but certainty nonetheless that, that nihilism, for example, demands. And when I hear you talk so passionately and also so informatively about you know, Beckett's work, you know, that you're, you're able to go beyond the, the, the cliches and go, be, go beyond the, the typical labels. It just reminds me of like, that's the reason why I do single author studies, you know, like mm-hmm. I did my PhD on Gao. And of course, I don't just study Gao, but I'm also studying him through like a critical lens. That's why I talk about censorship and engage him with like Bordeaux and engage him with Foucault mm. and other Chinese history and all writers and stuff like that. So I do a lot of stuff, but it is really that determination, right? That insistence that I want to go beyond just the cliches to understand a writer like Gao or for you, Beckett, that's why I do single author studies. So, I mean, is that sort of like what drives you to study Beckett? Mm. What a big question. (laughs) I will say before I answer, I think definitely that what we've discovered in this conversation is that you, Michael, need to write the Gao and Beckett book as well, or at least the chapter. Or we need to write it. I think (laughs) think we need to write something together, I feel like. All these lines are coming out, yeah. Um, I don't know. The, the single author studies one is is is. Um, I think it's a tricky one, certainly for for Anglophone university studies, at least. Um, I was certainly always going to study Beckett <laughs> from sort of hmm. the age of fifteen, sixteen onwards. I, I got the advice, and I'm very grateful for the advice um, from from Carrie Preston at, at Boston University, which is where I did my masters some time ago whenever I was pitching my PhD project at the time, the warning against starting out on a single author topic in terms of going on the job market in the US and to some degree, and I think increasingly within the UK market, the idea that you are seen as being too limited as a Mm. teacher if you've done a single author study. Now, absolutely, as you say, no single author study is ever really a single author study, right? You know, maybe if we go back to sort of, you know, 1940s, 1950s monographs, you might find that the studies that are, you know, very honestly, a close reading of just the works. None of us are doing that anymore. If you're doing single author, inevitably, there are so many other lines of of thought that that are being drawn in. But certainly, I think it's something that, that particularly PhD candidates and, and, and early career students on the market at the moment need to be aware of is, is how you're pitching your project so that it doesn't look like it's single author, right? Right, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, my first monograph, which, which is very much Beckett-focused, but it's, it's very explicitly, um, you know, Beckett and other post-war Francophone rather than French, again, with the sort of French emigre idea in there authors so it's Beckett all the way through but there is a different francophone author in comparison in almost every chapter and on one hand absolutely I think that's been an understudied element of 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 Beckett you've got Irish Beckett and you've got French Beckett but actually this attention to what being francophone means Mm, to to mm. be you know functionally French but not French but absolutely, there was also that attention to going, how do I write the project that I want to write? How do I want to write the project that gets at the things that I don't think have, have been examined enough in, in Beckett studies without sort of falling into that 
I think, intensely unfair model of, oh, it's a wonderful monograph, but it's a single author monograph, or, mm-hmm. oh, you're a wonderful scholar, but you're a single author scholar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, I can definitely relate to that. Uh, so I think in a way, like this podcast and the project associated with this podcast is sort of my effort to also, you know, transition as well. But my passion, you know, towards a a single author, like, yeah, it's just like you mentioned, you know, trying to get the things that you want to study and also you think is valuable. Mm. It's, yeah, it does require a a different type of attention, right? Which perhaps a a multi-author project may not have that focus. And Mm. that kind of brings me back to the Nobel Prize. For, For my case, I suppose, one of the reasons why I have funding, for example, to uh, continue doing uh, Gauss and Jen um, in Hong Kong right now is really because of the Nobel Prize. Like he's a Nobel mm-hmm. laureate. Another thing is because I study how he escapes or how he observes the prestige of the Nobel. So it's kind of also studying the celebrification effects of the Nobel on Gao. Um, but I believe one reason why I continue to get funding for it and attract maybe support is because he's a Nobel Prize laureate, um, which is so interesting, right? Because in your case, it seems like Beckett studies people don't really care. Like you just care about them because he's Beckett. He doesn't need the prestige. Does it, is, is that yeah. the case? I think absolutely in terms of the Nobel, I don't know. I'll have to ask other people about this now. I, do, I don't think absolutely that the Nobel has been crucial in sort of establishing that prestige, but the idea of the celebrification of an author, mm-hmm. absolutely, 100%. Mm-hmm. I mean, the merchandise that you can buy with Beckett's mm-hmm. face on it, <laughs> you know, or even sort of the way he's been co-opted by by the Irish government um, and, the, and the Dublin Council in terms of, oh, you know, almost a sort of tourist draw, right? You know, come and see the home of Beckett. Um, you know, he, you you will see him featured in in, in tourist adverts and, um, you know, he's he's definitely an icon in, in that sense. I, I'm sure, again, sort of anecdotal, but I'm sure absolutely there are far, far, far more people in the world who recognise the name Samuel Beckett and could sort of sure. tell you something about him without yeah. having read anything. He's, he's right. an icon yeah. in that sense. Yeah. yeah, for sure, for sure. And that's an and interesting question as to whether it's sort of attached to the Nobel Prize or not. My, my sense is no, but yeah, that's exactly. a question. I, I also agree with you, like when I was Thank you for listening, and we hope you have enjoyed this conversation. You can learn more about the cultural life of the Nobel Prize in Literature at nobelculturallife.wordpress.com. Please also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify. The Cultural Life of the Nobel Prize in Literature podcast is hosted by Michael Karchi Chuk. The production team is Wilma Komala, Brian Chen, Sadei Wong, Audrey Chen, Selim Wong, and Gwen Wong.